you would take your Bible and turn to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. If you are a guest with us today, we're so thankful that you're here. And we have a gift for you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you. That is our gift to you. Take it now and turn to 1 John chapter 1, which if you're not familiar with the Bible, that's okay. Uh, 1 John is towards the back. If you find the last uh, book, Revelation letter, uh, then turn several pages to the left and you'll find 1 John. There are times, church, where the Word of God is difficult and hard to understand. And this particular letter is a letter that has been much debated throughout the centuries uh, in the church. But I think at this point we've come to understand that the aim of John's writing is very clear. He points out to us in chapter 5 verse 19 again that we know that we are from God but that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And what John is seeking to do for the church, remember that those who have are receiving this letter have already heard the gospel. Uh, what he is seeking to do is to encourage them to walk in light of Christ that their joy may be full. What he argues is that real joy, lasting joy, true joy, only comes in vibrant fellowship with the living God. As we think about the Garden of Eden, we have to realize that the Garden of Eden was not paradise simply because of the absence of sin and all of the blessings materially in the garden. The garden was paradise because God's presence was there. Because God Himself dwelt with His people in the cool of the day. And what we find in our lives every day is that we live east of Eden. That we live in a fallen world. That we live in a dark world. And so, in seeking to encourage the church, John comes and places before us two very clear truths. One, that God is holy. Verse 5, God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And then all of verses 6, 7, and 10 really contend that man is sinful by nature. That man is darkness, and apart from the work of God, in him is no light at all. Many theologians throughout church history have erroneously asserted to people who want to buy into this teaching that man in his own ability can let light into this world. That is a pernicious lie from the lips of Satan. And this letter is written that we might refute that lie and understand that Christ and Christ alone is the true light that has come into the world. Man is fallen by nature and apart from the work of God in him is no light at all. And we saw last week that there are these three failures. One, we fail to realize, verse 6, the nature of sin in general. We often think of the sinful, depraved state of humanity just as a list of things that we do. Now it's that, we'll get to that of course, but it's more than that. It's really an entire outlook. It's an entire view of life. It's being part of a system that is plunged 
under a curse. That is, sin has invaded everything. If we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, while we walk in this system, this realm, this dominion, this worldly way of living our lives, then John says we are lying to ourselves and others and we do not practice the truth. But we also fail to realize that our nature, and this is really the whole thrust of the text in verse 8, that our nature itself is the core problem. That who we are, apart from the work of God, is fallen, God-despising, miserable, sinful creatures. It's not just something we do. Sin is something that has impacted every ounce of who we are. When God said to, to Adam... And Eve, in the day that you eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, of that tree, you will surely die. What did that mean? Some people like to boil that down and make it mean something far less than what it means. We can look into human history and tell empirically what that meant. It meant that we would perish temporally, that we would experience bodily death, that we would perish spiritually, That our inclination to holiness and righteousness, to honor God with our lives would be snuffed out. And that we would also, and this is less empirical, but it is true, especially in the economy of God's word, that we would die eternally. That we would suffer the wrath of God for all of eternity as a people. God doesn't come, Jesus doesn't come to save marginally good people. He doesn't come to save individuals who in their own strength and own ability can come to Him. He comes to seek and to save that which was lost. Both temporally, spiritually, and eternally. So John warns us. If we say that we have no sin, no sinful nature, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Ultimately, this is the issue that hinders our fellowship with God. Because in God, there is no darkness at all, and yet darkness pervades us outside and inside of our lives. We also fail to recognize that we are in need of forgiveness, moment by moment, day by day, in the individual particular sins that we commit. We fail to realize that we need to plead for the mercy of God. And so John writes in verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Very clear in what He's taught in these passages. So with that in mind, if you would stand to do honor to the reading of God's Word, we'll begin in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, in the realm of this world, in the dominion of worldliness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we, say, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. This is the Word of God to you and I today. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before You humbled by Your Word. 
knowing we have taken your word far too trivially in our lives. Father, we confess the reality that far too often we just want what we want. We want comfort and ease, security and safety. Father, what you really have offered in the gospel is that we might have abundant life, that we might have joy without measure in true fellowship with you regardless of what happens to us in this life. So Father, I pray that we would be a church, that we consider your word today, that would humble ourselves under its meaning, and that would seek after true joy, not temporal joy, that we would glorify you in all that we are and all that we do. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. So today, we we pivot from this teaching, the, the unpopular truth that man by nature is a fallen mess, and that only by the grace of God can he be restored. We pivot from that reality of our fallen state, of our total depravity, our radical depravity, and we focus on verses 7 and 9. And these verses are rooted in the reality that the gospel, again, has been presented to the people receiving this this letter. These are people who have come to understand what it means to be saved, and they want to follow the Lord, they have followed the Lord, and what John is writing is, is an encouragement towards joy and not to drift from the fellowship that they have that will give them life joy in Christ. And I don't want to move on from that too quickly and assume that everyone in this room understands the gospel. The gospel is simply this, that God created humanity in righteousness with an inclination to worship and to do what was righteous. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned. And in that sin, the entire human race has been plunged into sin. Every one of us are born sinful people. Man is sinful by nature, as verse 8 teaches us. But the glorious news of the gospel is that God has not washed His hands of humanity. In fact, He is seeking a particular people for Himself and He is redeeming them at this very moment. Peter tells us that if we are still alive on this planet, the other side of heaven, we know one thing is true and that is that God is gathering His church, redeeming people from every corner of the globe. And so he's doing that work this morning. And if you're here this morning and you've never seen yourself as a sinner, believe that you have missed the mark of perfection and that you stand condemned before God without the blood of Christ applied to your account. And this morning, God not only invites you, but he commands you to turn from your sin in repentance and to cling to Christ and to Christ alone in his finished work upon the cross as Jesus died for his church. So if you turn from your sin today and cling to Christ, you will have eternal life. So we come to these verses with that in mind, with that simple truth that every one of us at one point in our lives were the darkness. But God in His mercy has made us light in the Lord and we follow Him and we love Him. And so we come to verses 7 and 9 and we must consider that what John is saying is that to continue in our fellowship, we need to really think through our lives. And there are two distinct components to verses 7 and 9. That There are the things that we must do 
And then there are the things that God does as He responds to our, our turning to Him in the Gospel. We see in verse 7, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. That is man's part. And then you, if you go on, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. That is what God has done for His church. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, that is our part, then He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We learn that this fellowship, this relationship, is a genuine, organic, true, living relationship. That there is God doing His work and there is man in response to what God has done uh, confessing and walking in the light. It's not something that's merely mechanical. Far too often what I hear in the church at, at large is that our relationship with God is it's just reduced down into mechanical terms. If you'll do this, if you'll do that, if you'll do this, then everything will work out okay. But this is really picturing a true and a vibrant relationship. It's, it's not mechanical. It's more like, well, it's more like uh, music. Music has different parts, doesn't it? There are different components. And if you ever get close enough to me on Sunday morning, you'll know that I'm not musically inclined. Um, And I'm not going to try to draw out every part of a a composition in music. but, But we know that the arrangement of music notes are made into different compartments. There are different segments. But nobody just wants to listen to one particular segment of Mozart. We want to hear the whole stinking song. And, and so it is with our relationship with the living God. There are components, there are parts that God has told us in His Word and we are responsible to live in light of what He's done for us. And we don't just live our lives trying to plug those things out mechanically. We want the entire song. We want all of the relationship that we can have with the living God. Although our relationship with the Lord is defined certainly in many different constituent parts, these parts coming together make beautiful music. And our relationship with the living God should be beautiful. It shouldn't just be academic. It shouldn't just be heady and brainy. It should be all of us, our heart, our will, our soul, all of who we are to be engaged in our relationship with Christ. You see, the danger is then we come to this passage and we come with our own bent, with our own particular theological viewpoint and we read that viewpoint into the text. The danger that we always have in coming to the Bible church is this, that we lord over the Bible and the Bible doesn't lord over us. We need to live in such a way under the authority of the Word of God that we truly believe that He is right and that we continually need to grow in understanding what His Word teaches. God help us. If we ever come to the place where we think we are the ones who have the the, 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 the market cornered on doctrinal teaching, on what scriptures communicate. We, we all should come and approach this particular text as every other text with humility. No, we shouldn't force our ideas into this 
text, but there are so many who come to this text and that's what they do. They come to verse uh, 7. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, and they take just that little snippet and they say, well, now here is a list of things that I consider to be light. You should do these things. You should act in this way. You should be involved in these movements. You should fill in the blank. Generally, that kind of legalistic tendency changes every generation. But they define the light by what they want in humanity. By what they see in the world as being less. And so they come to the text and they say, well, ultimately to walk in the light means, and then they fill in the blank with whatever they want this life to be about. We do that as we lord over other people's consciences with our own conscience. And we've fallen into a ditch in doing that. Or we come to, to verse 9. If we confess our sins. Now that whole, that phrase deserves its own sermon. I'm glad that you agree. We'll get one. Um, but what does that mean? What does it mean to confess our sins? Many will insert their view into this text that that means that this morning, each one of us needs to go to a priest that has been installed by a hierarchy of church whatever, ecclesiastical authority, and you need to say your confession to the priest and you need to listen to what the priest tells you to do, and then and only then can your sins be absolved. The difficulty is that's not found in the text at all. Not here anywhere in Scripture. Many will heap different views onto what that particular text means. Others will come to it and they'll minimize it. They'll make it so trivial in their lives. They'll they'll relegate confession to a once and done at some early point in their Christian life and that's all it means. We must not come to this or any part of Scripture and rip individual parts out of their context to prove what we want out of the text. Because you see, the real thrust of this text is not a list of things that we should walk in or a particular bent of theology. The point of this text in context is a real vibrant joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to remember that. We have to remember that the aim of this text is walking in light of our relationship with Christ that has been completed by Him through His grace alone. We must take this, again, in its own unique context. We must also remember the writing style, and I think this is far too often what is missed in so much teaching of this letter. As I've read multiple commentators on this text, what I often find is that there's, there's too, too much rigidity in what is being written about these words. I, if you go back in your mind to your childhood days, for some of you, I may need to give you a minute. That was a joke. That if you remember back to your, your school days, you'll recall that you had different teachers with different styles of teaching. Some were more rigid. Others less so. Some were more scientific. Others were more artful. They had more style in their teaching. And so it is with every one of the biblical authors. We know that God has inspired His Word, but we also know that God left room for the human authors. 
authorship and for each individual author, their personality to come through their writing. Some writers in the Bible are more linear, like Paul. I love Paul because he doesn't, he doesn't dance around something. He just gets right at it. And then he makes these linear arguments all the way through. I mean, and sentences that go on for paragraphs. You've got to love Paul. But others, like John, in his writing of the Gospel, his letters in Revelation, they're less theological, and it's not that John's devoid of theology. There's a clear, robust theology here. But he's painting theology in word pictures. He's giving us images to look at. He's being artful in the way that he is communicating. And so if we come at John in his writing, and we seek to interpret him the same way that we do... In everything that Paul writes, we're going to miss something. We're, going to, we're probably going to be a little bit off. And I believe that is what has happened in so much error with this text. Uh, many uh, who maybe would not label themselves this way, but I think it's a good label, uh, that are perfectionists. That is those who believe that if you are in Christ, you this life can attain sinless perfection, and that in fact, if you are in Christ, you will attain sinless perfection, they err in this text by taking every word in its literal form. The problem is they're interpreting John to write in the same style as Paul. So we come to this text, we can't do that. We've got to see that, that John is giving us an image here. If you walk in the light is a picture. It's not this rigid set of words that is to lead us to thinking that we have to be perfect in our own righteousness. So we come to the first thing that, it, that John writes. That we are to walk in the light as he is in the light. Now this is, walking in the light is one of those images that if you read all of John's writing, you'll find it littered throughout what he writes. And again, he's not writing literally. If he is writing literally here, it means only one thing. That we have to be absolutely perfect to be Christians. If he is strictly using literal terms here, it means our only hope for forgiveness is that we walk as perfectly as Christ walked. If he's being literal, it quite frankly means that everyone in this room today is damned. So that's not what he's writing, and it can't be. Because if we look at verse 8, he's already dispelled the myth of us being in a perfected state. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It's not something that we do occasionally. It's part of our nature. And we can't deny that sin lies close at hand. He says, verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And what we learned last week is that walking in the darkness is an image, a picture of 
of being an individual who walks according to the world, according to the dominion of Satan, according to what is contrary to everything that Christ has taught. The person who walks in darkness, though, is not necessarily one that just misses your list of morality. And that's what's so unfortunate about this passage is so many people have interpreted it to just mean, well, you need to live up to a set of moral teachings. That's not what it means at all. Because this, this passage is much more than that. It speaks to the gospel. And there are individuals that may very well in their morality be a step ahead of someone who is actually in Christ, but that individual in their moralism, in their thinking that they can be everything they should be in their own strength and ability, they've denied the gospel altogether. And so what is written here is that we, as we walk in the light, we are not walking according to what Satan would have us. We are not walking according to the way the world would have us to walk. Walking in the darkness is walking according to the world and not to Christ. And so when we consider walking in the light, we have to see it as everything that is antithetical to the world. We are Walking in a way that is other than the way the world walks. It doesn't mean absolute perfection. It just means that we have been taken out of the darkness by the grace of God alone and we are now walking in a way that is, is, is different than the way the world walks. It, it means that we have been bought with a price. That we have a new nature and a new Mind, that everything has become new. That you and I who are in Christ this morning, that we belong to an entirely different kingdom. This passage doesn't mean that we in our own self-righteous ability can please God. It's never meant that. It will never mean that. In fact, we know as Christians that we are part of the kingdom of Christ in spite of who we are. Not because of who we are. We have come to saving knowledge, a saving knowledge of the gospel, not because we are so smart, but because He in His sovereign mercy opened our blinded eyes to our desperate need for forgiveness. Paul wrote about it in this way. In Colossians chapter 1. He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This text isn't about our perfection. It's about His grace. What are you walking in light of? Peter writes about this same truth in this way. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people of His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellency of Him who called you out of the darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now by His grace you have received mercy. This text is about the kingdom to which you belong, in which you have been given mercy. But there's always this type of perfectionism that creeps in a type of thinking well the good people will get the blessing and the ones who walk in the light uh, there's individuals who, who will say well really as long as you make a profession of faith in Jesus you are a Christian 
And, and then there's this really godly group of people who begin to walk in light of who Christ is. That there are these, and they'll say this, there are these carnal Christians. The Bible never comes to you with that category. And then there are the really godly people over here. And what John tells us this morning is that's totally a false system. If you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness, from the world system, to Christ's kingdom and His system, what you will be found doing in your lives, and not to perfection, but in various degrees as you will be walking in the light. Because He has radically changed you. And the whole ideology that somehow God will save people but not change them, leave them in their carnality is completely contrary to the Word of God. There are not super Christians. There is Christ, our one victor, and then there are the rest of us. What John is saying in very clear terms is this. If you walk in darkness, if you walk according to the world's system, you're not a Christian. If you say that you have fellowship with Christ, but you live according to what the world system says, you are deceiving yourselves and you're deceiving others. So then we come to this question. What does walking in the light practically mean? It means that we are repenting, that we are a people who have turned from the darkness and we are walking towards the light, that we in every area of our lives want the glory of God to be made manifest. And unless we are a repenting people, we cannot say that we are in the light. Now this is where I think the perfectionist loses the argument altogether. Because the Bible makes it clear. Jesus says, and the apostles and prophets all the time are calling people to repent, to turn continually to Christ, to to God. The perfectionist has no reason to turn. Because in their own right, in their own ability, in their own strength, they're already perfect. They're sinless. There is no need for repentance. So this passage can't in any way land in that teaching. Because we've already learned that if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Everyone who is in Christ knows the reality that they were born a sinner. That it is our nature that we are sinful people. That we were born into this life children of wrath. And we have come in a moment to understand that because of that nature and because we continually sin in our lives, we must have a solution to the problem of our sin that comes from outside of us. That there's nothing in us that would ultimately bring us into right relationship with God. We must have a righteousness that is outside of us. And so we have cried out to the living God that He would forgive us of our sin. We've cried out like David has cried out in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercies, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And continuing in verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. To walk in the light practically speaking, is simply this. 
to turn from the world and to turn from sin and to cling to Christ. It's a, it's a picture of a mind change. The, the, the word in the Greek for repent literally means to do a 180 and to have a complete change of mind. And it's written out here in long form in John's word words that we would be changed from facing the darkness and following after the darkness and living in the darkness to all of a sudden coming to a grand awareness that there is a light, spiritually speaking, in the universe and His name is Jesus Christ and we are going to walk in His direction even though the reality of all of our life is that we are surrounded by darkness and that the darkness comes out of us in different times in our lives. You see, repenting is the whole point of this text. That the one solution to our sinful state is that Christ would save us by His grace alone and that we would walk with Him in spirit and in truth according to repentance. You see, it gives us a picture of our priorities being completely different. Once we were again facing a world and we were growing in sin, in love with everything in in this life, but now we have seen what Christ has done for us. We've seen Him as the One who is the only true light and we will suffer the loss of everything in our lives if it would bring Him glory. You know what I think the key to understanding this verse in the entire Bible is if you don't hear anything else from me listen to this the one thing that I believe the church gets wrong more than anything else is this reality that there is one singular light in the universe and it is not any one of us there is only one light and that one singular light is the Lord Jesus Christ is the triune Godhead of all Scripture. The only light in the universe emanates from the Godhead, not from humanity. And every time we start to get into theological debates about how sinful man really is, we need to just hard stop come to the reality that there is but darkness in humanity. And that if we find genuine spiritual light in any individual, it is only a reflection of the true light in the living God. If we could get that squared away, I think much of Scripture would fall into place in our minds. But we protest and we want to argue that somehow we can, we can work up light in our own strength. No, we can't. 6,000 years of human history prove that we are wretchedly depraved. But this passage tells us that the light has come into the world and we can walk in light of Him. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? I can tell you that John was thankful for that because you know he couldn't even get six verses into his gospel without spouting off about the reality of who this light was. There was a, there was a man sent from God, he says, John chapter one, verses six through nine, whose name was John. He came to witness, came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. The argument that John makes is, don't ever think that I, John, am the light. I've authored under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the gospel, three letters, and revelation, but I'm not the light. He's the light. And I'm walking in light of Him. 
Now, ultimately, this brings us to the point where we've got to realize there are two errors when it comes to separating ourselves from the world. If we're talking about turning from the world system and that entire dominion and walking in the light, there are two ways that we fall off into error. One is monasticism. Monasticism. We come to this reality that the world is a spiritually dark place and so many different religious movements throughout human history have said, fine, then we need to find a monastery and we need to remove ourselves from the world and we need to be apart from them and do all of our holy work and all of that and not have anything to do with the world. Just one problem with that thought process. The darkness isn't only out there, it's in here. So you can lock yourself in the room and you've just taken the problem with you. Anasticism is tempting, but it'll never work. The other, path, the other path is this, and I find it, I found it often in Protestant churches, and it is an abuse of justification by faith alone. We come in, in, in opposed to the teaching that somehow we need to be monastic or we need to trust in a sacerdotal system to give us righteousness. And we declare rightly that our salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then we fall off the wagon in saying, so I can do whatever I want. And we've just found ourselves in that kind of thinking, of thinking exactly as the Gnostics thought. That we can live however we please, because after all, we're justified by faith alone. And we are! But consider what John or what Paul says rather in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Or do you do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. Boy, he's getting everybody in there. Will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So how do we just how do we work together and justify that justification is by faith alone, but that some people will not inherit the kingdom of God because of their unrighteousness? Well, I think that's what John is aiming at in his writing here. It is faith alone through grace that I am saved. The only way to know, though, that I have actually been saved by grace through faith is in light of how I am moving towards Christ. The test of my Christian profession comes from whether or not I'm walking not in light of a denomination, not in light of church membership, not in light of who my parents are and their religious heritage, not in light of any of those things. The question boils down to this. Are you walking in light of the only light that has ever come into a dark world? Are you living your life in light of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you growing in Him daily? John here is telling you to test the, your profession of faith. If you say that you're a Christian and have fellowship with God, but you have the same outlook on life that the world does, you're deceiving yourself. If you say that you follow Christ, but the entire world system guides you, leads you, enamors you, you have no fellowship with God. You know, one of the most discouraging things to me, 
Not that this is anecdotal, not that this matters. Job postings for pastors. Because this verse clearly teaches that we as the redeemed bride of Christ are not to live according to the world system. And do you know when churches look for pastors what they do? They go to the world system. They want a, 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 someone that has all of the giftings that, that a CEO would have. And they just tack the word pastor onto it. They don't concern themselves if a man is really born again. They don't concern themselves with his relationship with Christ. They don't concern themselves with his testimony in a particular community, his fidelity to the gospel. They just want to make sure that they have a strong leader that can continue to bankroll the church. And do you know what I believe that in application this text says of those kinds of churches? They're not churches at all. They're man-made religious centers that have robbed God of His title of the church. That's it. We can't use, beloved, do not walk in this church and take everything that you see in the world and shove it in the face of the church and say, now live like that. Now, now we, we should build our church the way that, and fill in the blank whatever organization. No, we don't build the church at all. Jesus is building His church. We proclaim the truth and we watch Him work. That's the reality. We live our lives faithfully according to the Word of God, knowing that we are sinners in need of His grace every moment of our lives. So we come seeing that Christ is the only light that has ever come into the world and we must live our lives in light of Him. It's why this, it, it's so dangerous to interpret this text in light of morality. Because morality in and of itself is just another worldly system. And many people will be deceived and will find on the last day that Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. You who work lawlessness. And they'll go, But I was moral. The yacht club thought I was a great guy. Everybody, everybody in my bridge club thought I was a wonderful woman. doesn't matter what men think of you. It matters what God thinks of you. And the question this morning is that if you say you're a Christian, your entire mind should be changed through the working of the Spirit and the Word. Is that what's going on in your life, Christian? Now the second thing we must do on our side is we must confess our sins. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not only must we give evidence that we're walking in light of the kingdom of Christ, by grace alone we have been saved through faith and we're walking in light of the only one who is light, we must also come in particular ways and confess our individual sins to God. Now we might ask the question, why does a failure to confess uh, sin result in the breaking down of our fellowship? Because it really reveals how we relate to the light. Refusing to confess is really a refusal to fellowship with God at all. Because the light, Christ, exposes our deeds. And if I refuse to come to Him, I'm hiding in the darkness, and I am refusing His light in my life. I'm refusing a genuine relationship with Him. Remember John 
chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. I read them last week. And this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world. That is Christ. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light. Lest his works should be exposed. Beloved, don't ever allow anyone to tell you that God is to blame for the ruin of, of, and judgment of sinners. God's not responsible. Every human being that, that is under the wrath of God for all of eternity is responsible for their own destruction because they loved the darkness rather than the light. The problem that humanity faces is not the holiness that is in God, it's the depravity that's in man. Some people will say, God would never choose He would never choose to punish good people. He he would never ultimately send someone to hell. Uh, That's just not what a loving God does. That is complete hogwash. Because the reality of what we see in the Gospels is that a loving God sent His only begotten Son into the world to save His covenant people. And you know what they did to Him? They crucified Him. I mean, that's... That's evidence one of how wretchedly depraved humanity is. And instead, when the light came into the world, instead of confessing and believing, we crucified. That's what humanity does. That is the depth of the nature of our depravity. Don't also let anyone ever convince you that people come to the light apart from the sovereign work of grace. We are given a new nature. I am a Christian this morning because of God's work. My wife is a Christian this morning because of what God has done. Ray, you are a Christian this morning because of what God and God alone has done. Dallas, buddy, it ain't because of you. You can play pretty good music over there. But it's not because of that. It's not because God needed a drummer. It's because in God's kindness and mercy, He set His love upon His church before the foundation of the world. And the only reason why any person ever comes to the light is because verse 8 has been changed by the grace of God. We now have a nature that hungers and thirsts after God. Our mind has been changed. Our heart has been changed. Our will has been changed by the sovereign work of an almighty, kind, loving, benevolent, gracious God. So what this verse teaches is that if we are really born again, if we are really in Christ, then the Spirit of God resides in us and we will be led by that light. We will be led by the work of the Spirit in our life. And if we refuse to confess that we are sinners and to confess individual sins to God, what are we doing but working against the the Spirit of Almighty God? And that is not something that is congruent with new birth in the life of a Christian. The, the work of the Spirit is to bring sin to light so that it might be dealt with. And, and those who ultimately resist confessing their sins before God are ultimately declaring that they don't believe they have need for confession. This also means that we're not being honest with ourselves. If we do not confess our sins, we're not being honest with ourselves. And if we can't be honest with ourselves about 
about who we are, how in the world can we have a real relationship with a living God who knows more about us than we do? Our relationship has to be built on truth and trust. Our relationship has to be built on the reality that as we come as sinful, wretched human beings before the throne of holiness, that we must cry out as Isaiah did, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Do you see the instant of confession how it flows out of an individual who has really come into contact with the holy? It's so, it's so natural that when we see God for who He really is, what wells out of our heart is not a begrudging, well, I could find my way to heaven on my own. That's not what happens. What happens is we cry out, God, be merciful to us. God, forgive us of our sin. And a refusal to deal with sin ultimately is declaring a distrust for the Gospel. Ultimately, what we are saying... Is we don't know that God will forgive us. We don't know that God's grace really can cover this sin. You know how many times I've been told as a preacher, Jay, I, you know, I hear what you preach about the gospel, but if you knew my sin, no one could forgive that. That's what it means to walk in the darkness. Having that kind of mindset that says Christ can't forgive something. Because here's the reality, friend. If you're here today and you believe that Jesus can't forgive whatever sin He chooses to forgive, then you don't know Him. The second that you come to know the holiness of our Savior, you will understand that He can overcome any darkness. There is no sin Christ could not atone for. See, confession means that we are facing the line. And it's painful at times. It's a process of letting the Word and the Spirit dwell richly in our lives. And it takes a lifetime. We don't just merely acknowledge in general that we're sinful. We specifically pour out our hearts before God enumerating that we are in need of His Grace. You know, one of the things that I've found anecdotally all throughout the church that we try to teach each other when we're having a difficult time, you need to count your blessings. How many of you ever heard that? All the time, right? I don't think that's a bad thing to do, but there's something better we can do. And the better is that we enumerate our sins, not necessarily to one another, although I think in some context that's okay, but we confess our sin, we number them, one by one, before the holy throne of heaven. Why? Because we know that the God of the universe has sent His only begotten Son and that as we confess, He is gracious and just to forgive and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. As we experience difficulty in our lives and as we are racked over the grief of our sin, we can come before God and those sins before Him and we'll never be able to grasp all of our sins. I'm convinced of that. The further that I grow in my relationship personally with Christ, the more sinful I see myself. The more that we grow in Christ's likeness, the more we will see our own inadequacy. But you know what the glorious truth is? In seeing that inadequacy, we will see Jesus as all the more beautiful because He is 
the one that has overcome all of our darkness. Isn't that why we worship him? Because he is wonderful in all of his ways in dealing with us. So coming to confess our sin is simply trusting that He is what He says He is in this verse 9. Faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now this doesn't teach that we need, again, some priest to absolve our sin. It doesn't mean that we need a mediator. Jesus Christ is our high priest and we can go to God individually in our prayer closets we can confess to Him. Some of you have had questions about why as a church we have a time of confession. Well, we're not absolving anyone of sin. Only Christ can do that. But part of worship really is responding to the holy. And can I tell you the number one problem I think often in the church is that we're not responding to the holy. We're responding to a cartoon caricature of who the living God is. We are responding to something less than who God is. But when God is really held out as the holy, infinite God of all of the universe, we all need a time of confession. If God walked in here this day, I can guarantee you this, not one person would be saying, well, I don't want any time to confess. And here's the question, if that's true, then do you believe He dwells in our midst? Our aim isn't to absolve anyone in those corporate times. It's merely to give you a time to go before the Lord and to cry out for His mercy because if His Spirit is at work in you and you are walking in the light, you know you need His mercy. Now, here's the other question. So is that the only time we confess? Good Lord, no. I don't make it to the back of the auditorium before there's some... Man, I wish I would have said this different. Or God forgive me for that. Every time I finish preaching, I have to put everything I've said under the blood of Christ and allow Him to have His perfect will and way because it is only His work that matters. Right? If we say that we are Christians, but we walk not according to this world, but we should walk not according to this world, but according to the light of the Gospel. Beloved, we are in the world, but we are not of it. We are of a completely different people now. At one time we weren't a people, but now we are a people. We belong to the living God, and so we should live in light of our eternal home, not our temporal circumstance. And we will also, if we are Christians, yield to the work of the Spirit in our lives. We will confess that we are sinners. We will all throughout our lives, trust that God is who He says He is and that He will cleanse us by the blood of Christ. That He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we sin? Yes. But our God is still saving. The the key to understanding this text is knowing that our salvation isn't in anything we do. It's in everything that He's already done. And so we walk in light of that. We continue to grow in sanctification in light of that. And what this passage teaches us is that our testimony is not only in words. It's not just a mere profession. It's not just lip service. Our profession of faith can be seen as God works graciously in our lives every day. We know that we are not saved by our works, but we do know that we are saved unto good works. That He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And why is He doing this? 
He's doing it for his own glory. And that should be sufficient for every question that is ever raised. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come before you this morning acknowledging the reality that far too often we slip into monasticism or into antinomianism and allowing ourselves to be at just close to the world. Father, this text calls us out from the world. It causes it calls us not to live according to some religious tradition or political tradition or bent, but to live in light of Christ and Christ alone. Father, might You grant in increasing measure that grace in our lives. Might we live our lives for Your glory, knowing that the only hope we have of heaven is Your mercy and grace, that we couldn't save ourselves in any form. Father, we pray that we would be people who walk in the light, who are increasingly salt and light to our own generation, that we steward and bear the Gospel well, and that we do all of that not just so that we can religiously have pride in what we've done. God, deliver us from that evil. But that we might give you glory eternally for what you have done. In Christ's name, amen.